You can pull out your Bibles and go ahead and turn to Matthew 21 as we continue in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And While you're finishing turning there, if I were to go around town this morning or ask you to go around and take an informal poll of all the persons you found, asking them whether or not they think they stole from God this week, what do you think the overwhelming answer would be? I think the nearly universal answer would be, no, of course not. I don't think there's anyone who thinks they're stealing from God. There may be several who say there is no God. That's another issue. But I don't think there's anyone who says they believe there is a God that would readily admit, yes, I stole from him this week. There's a problem with that question. I'll illustrate it by asking other questions. What does stealing from God even look like? What does it mean to rob God? We need to define it, don't we? Because in the abstract, it's very easy to say, no, I don't steal from God. Simply put, to steal from God is to misappropriate or misuse something he has provided. It's to fail to worship God. It's to fail to give thanks to God. It's the failure to praise God. You can help steal from God and rob from God by distracting persons from the worship of God or to draw attention from him, often to yourself. Getting even more concrete, here are some ways I think that we do steal from God. One has to do with the resources God's given. Do you freely give and use your resources to him, one of which is time? Are you redeeming your time? Well, what does that look like? How are you using it? You find at the end of the day that there's time you've wasted. Are you misusing this valuable resource he's given, spending it more on yourself than anything else? Do you spend time serving others? You spend time edifying and encouraging other believers. Or along the same line of resources, what about your finances? How do you spend your money? Does it reflect that you love God above all else? Are you giving generously to God? Are you using your money and your resources to serve others? Or in the worship of God, are you regularly worshiping God? God, do you make the worship of God, both corporately and individually, a priority? Do you spend time in prayer regularly? Do you spend regular time studying God's Word? Do you regularly and faithfully attend church? And then how about encouraging the worship of others? Does your life encourage others to worship God? Do you speak often about God? This is where it gets a little painful. Do you give thanks regularly and publicly? And the negative side of that is, do you grumble and complain? If so, do you realize you're stealing glory from God by denying the goodness of God? You're stealing praise from him. You're redirecting it to yourself and your circumstances. You see, that's the problem with an abstract question like, are you just stealing from God? Until you define it, until you make it concrete and provide examples, it's very easy to say, no, of course not. 
But as soon as you realize the different ways that we might steal from God, we begin to shift uncomfortably in our seats, like some of you were just doing. Throughout the Old Testament, the worship of God is put forward as the most important thing any person can do. Your relation to God, how you think and how you behave toward him, is the most important thing in this life and in the life to come. Love for the Lord coupled with obedience demonstrates saving faith. It doesn't save you, but it demonstrates saving faith. One's worship of God through obedience and faithfulness, through corporate worship together, identifies whether one is a true believer and whether or not they experience the blessing or the judgment of God. And that was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. In Isaiah 42, 8, God spoke, saying, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. A little bit later, in Isaiah 48, 11, he says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another? The first act of disobedience, an attempt to take glory from God, was in the Garden of Eden, and it plummeted the world into sin and darkness and brought judgment on all mankind. The first illustration of cultic worship or a worship ceremony was Cain and Abel bringing their offerings. And we had Cain's failure to obey, not only in the type and quality of the offering, but in doing right after the fact leading to the murder of Abel and the judgment and banishment of Cain. And the examples just continue from there throughout the Old Testament into the New. And this morning, we join Jesus and the crowds as he makes his way through Jerusalem to the temple. You remember last week, we made it into the gate. That's as far as we made it. We made it through the gates, and the crowds there in the city were asking, Who is this Jesus? Well, now they begin to make their way through Jerusalem toward the temple. And it's there in the temple that we are confronted anew with what it looks like to rob God and the seriousness of it. Read along with me if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 21, beginning in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. Overturned the temple. It is written and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Let's pray. Father, as we approach the text this morning, as we sense the weight of what is being said and being communicated, would we have our attention Peaked? Would we lean in to observe what is going on here as we see the severity with which Jesus deals with and speaks with 
those who would profane your worship, who would draw attention from you, who would steal your glory or attempt to steal your glory. Would we not be guilty? But would we be quick to repent where we have sinned? Help us in our understanding this morning. Help us to be quick to apply the things we see. In your name, amen. Well, Matthew and the other gospel writers indicate that Jesus' first stop after entering the city, riding upon that young donkey, was the temple. And the word that Matthew uses here for temple really refers to the entire temple complex. There's another word that is usually used to refer to the temple proper, what we would usually think of as the temple, which is the sanctuary. But he frequently uses this word temple to describe the entire temple complex. And this temple complex was massive. It was one of the largest structures in the entire Roman world, measuring over 1,500, almost 1,600 feet to the west, over 1,000 feet on the north, almost 1,600 feet on the east, and almost another 1,000 feet on the south. It equaled 35 football fields in size and covered one-sixth of the total area of Jerusalem. This was a big area. And the temple was divided into these different areas, often called courts. You may be familiar with some of the court names. And the place you first entered, that larger court, we refer to it as the court of the Gentiles. Now, it probably wasn't called the court of the Gentiles at the time of Jesus, but that's where it, how it functioned. It's as far as the Gentiles were allowed. It's a court where everyone, even Gentiles, could come and worship, but that was as close as the Gentiles could get to the sanctuary lest they profane it. The next court was called the outer court or the court of the women. It's where both Israelite men and women could congregate and worship. However, before you could enter there, just in case a Gentile would dare trespass, there was a sign placed probably somewhere just a couple decades earlier. It's possible that Herod himself put it there when he erected this temple that warned anyone who, any Gentile specifically, who stepped foot within this court was taking their life into their own hands and was guilty of their own death. I think I've seen a few of those signs in North Georgia. After the court of the women, you had the inner court, then the temple proper, within which was the holy place and the holy of holies. And there are a lot more details to this. There's a lot of, uh, there were other areas that were set aside and even within the court of the women, four different sections. And so there was a lot in this temple complex. And we'll save those details for another time because everything that we read this morning, all of it, takes place in that very first court, what we would call the court of the Gentiles. And just a little bit more historical background. You remember it's Passover. That's the busy time. That's the main celebration. It's where all the Israelites come. It's where the size of the city swells to the hundreds of thousands. Some think it went over a million. At a minimum, it was hundreds of thousands. Up from maybe 100,000 the rest of the year. There's a lot of people in the city. It is packed. People are moving about. There's a whole lot of sacrifices being made. And these sacrifices that had to be made, there were various ones, but one thing they all had in common is they had to be pure sacrifices. They could be unblemished. And in order to be declared unblemished, the priest had to declare them clean. 
if you didn't have a clean animal or your animal was declared unclean, you would have to purchase one of the pre-approved temple animals that already had the priestly blessing of this is clean. The priests and religious leaders by this time, not as a whole, but many of them, had become very adept at finding reasons or excuses for declaring an animal unclean. It had gotten so bad that most persons seemed to have stopped bringing their own animals, instead just planned on purchasing the pre-approved animals from the vendors that were there. And originally these vendors were set out, out of the city in the Mount of Olives. But a short time before this, we're not exactly sure when, before Jesus' ministry, again, possibly Herod who did this, thought it would be more convenient to move the vendors into this first court. I mean, it's already profaned by the Gentiles. Why not stick some animals in there too? I mean, it made things easier. Now you had, had the animals right there where you needed them. You didn't have to worry about walking them through the gates and crowding them up further. But what that meant is that an already busy scene was absolutely chaotic. This was not a quiet, peaceful worship area they walked into. When you enter into this court of the Gentiles, it would have stunk from the smell of all the animals. It would have been lousy. People would have been shouting. To add to the chaos even further, Israelites were not allowed to use Roman coinage since it was declared unclean, conveniently so, for temple usage since it bore idolatrous images or profane writing. So it had to be exchanged. It had to be exchanged for Tyrrhenian shekels that were approved for use on buying the pre-approved animal sacrifice. It was quite an enterprise. It had become so obvious that it was a money-making scheme that it had even developed the name, the Bazaar of Annas, Annas being the high priest at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. This is the marketplace of Annas. Now, again, not every religious leader or priest was wholly corrupt. You remember Zacharias, the priest, the father of John the Baptist. He was a faithful follower of the Lord. But as a whole, the system was set up to encourage corruption, oppression, and abuse. And around the Passover, it went from bad to worse. How so? Well, you can just imagine the extortion. Almost every one of us who tried to buy flowers this weekend felt it. Bouquets that normally cost $5, they're now $40. Why? Because it's Mother's Day, and mothers are worth it. So of course you're going to pay it. You don't want your mom thinking you don't love her, right? Or you go to Disney World or do a ball game. They've got you. They can charge whatever they want for a hot dog. And that's what's going on here. It's Passover. You have to present your sacrifice, so the prices are at a peak. It was an incredibly abusive system, especially when you consider the fact that most of the people were living day by day. It was a daily wage. That made up the vast majority of the populace. And it's in the midst of this chaotic scene that Jesus enters and begins to throw over tables and chairs. Now, right away, just in case some of you are listening a little too closely, children especially, this is an important reminder of how narrative work works. Narrative is descriptive, not prescriptive. Doesn't mean there's not important applications and implications, but just because something is described, you don't do it. It's a good way to get in trouble. But notice 
where Jesus focuses this energy and his attention. It's on the money changers and those selling doves, or it might have been pigeons. It's a word that was fluid there. What he was doing, and I'll show you why this is true, he was going after the main artery of this business, the lifeblood of this enterprise. These were the two points with the greatest abuse and the most transactions. Because almost everyone needing to purchase had to exchange their money. So you already, you've got a majority of the people, whether they're poor or rich, they're having to exchange money. Not everybody, but most persons. Secondly, as we've already noted, the greatest percentage, the greater percentage of the populace was poor. And for the poor, because they could not afford very much, the law had made prescriptions to allow them to purchase smaller animals like doves or pigeons. And so since most persons fell into the category of poor, this was one of, if not the busiest, pre-approved sacrifice the vendors were selling. And so he goes after the two chief places of business, the two chief places where abuse was going on, the two chief places where people were being distracted from worship by this exorbitant abusive system. And because of that, again, remember, it's already busy. It's already chaotic. So flipping tables and chairs, that would have gotten a little bit of attention. But you do it where the money is passing the fastest, and that gets people's attention. And it would have definitely gained the attention of the religious leaders, as we see. And it's here in the midst of this chaotic scene that Jesus begins to criticize and go after the religious leaders. And we read there in verse 12, Jesus entered the temple, drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changer and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, one thing that's important to note is that this was largely symbolic. They probably had it set back up just a few hours later. But it was done to illustrate God's disapproval and judgment upon those who would abuse the poor and the needy and turn God's house into a marketplace away from what it really was. And Jesus had already warned them about this three years earlier. You can read about that in John 2. That time he made a whip and physically drove them out. Because they can be thankful all he did was overturn tables and chairs this time. And note what he says to him in verse 13. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Jesus pulls together here two texts that are rich and pregnant with meaning based on their original context. The first is from Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, that whole passage speaks of the coming salvation and restoration, the hope of the return of the Messiah, specifically looks forward and anticipates the inclusion and the salvation of the Gentiles, which is profound considering the place they were standing in was the court of the Gentiles, who were excluded from so much in the worship of God. So he says, this is what it should look like. This is what you should be anticipating. Instead, and he goes on to add the condemnation and judgment from Jeremiah 7, where he condemns 
worshipers who live in sin outside the temple and then enter the house of God to hide from their sin like robbers do in a den. That's the context of Jeremiah 7. Contemns worshipers who live in sin outside the temple then enter the house of God to hide in that sin. It reminds me very much, I remember years ago hearing someone describe our culture and the way it was headed was it described worship as almost a mosaic. And I was trying to understand what they meant by that. And you know, those stained glass mosaics where you got all the different pieces. And they were pointing out that we have gotten very good at segmenting our lives and are dividing our lives up and keeping everything in nice little buckets. And you had persons, this was especially true of young people, probably my generation, about 20 years ago, who would say, and I think it's been true of all generations, they, they would live one way throughout the week, but when they came to church, they saw no problem in acting an entirely different way, and in their minds, there was no hypocrisy. They were able to just separate out their life into these different pieces. It's a form of hypocrisy. It's exactly the type of thing God condemns. He condemned the nation of Israel, and here he's condemning the Israelites of, the religious leaders. But see here, it's even worse than it was in Jeremiah 7. Because now the temple hasn't simply become a place of refuge from their sin, acting as if nothing was really wrong. Now the temple has been turned into a mafia-like stronghold, as one commentator noted. I think that's a good description. Because unlike a normal robber's den that's simply the safe place and the stronghold where the robbers retreat to in secrecy, now in their stronghold, the victims must come to their oppressors, those abusing them, submit to their abuse in order to worship God. Can you imagine a greater distraction for the true worshiper? From the chaotic scenes all around to the abusive prices and the extortion, there was nothing pointing to the worship of God. Everything instead would confuse persons, Confuse them about what God truly wanted. You can imagine persons turned off by a God who would have priests like this who would abuse us in such a way. As you read throughout several places in the Old Testament, like priests, like people. And they don't want to be like these priests. Be turned off from the worship of God. So Jesus responds strongly because God has said in Isaiah 113, I cannot endure iniquity, that is sin, and the solemn assembly. He cannot stand for this type of hypocrisy, this type of thievery when it comes to the worship of him, this type of dilution, this type of false teaching. So we see clearly the reasons for Jesus' action. God hates sin, especially sin that interferes with worship and steals glory from him. He also has a particular hatred for oppression of those who are weak and poor, as these priests, as these priestly approved vendors were doing. So he gets their attention. He's provided the contrast on what it should look like, what you've made it look like. And notice what he does in verse 14. He goes from this destructive judgmental force 
to healing and care. I mean, if you didn't know better, you'd think it was bipolar. But as one commentator notes, Matthew juxtaposes, puts in contrast, Jesus' savage words of judgment with such a simple statement. The blind and the lame people approached him in the temple and he healed them. Here is what the temple should look like. Persons coming and petitioning the Lord, just as these blind and lame do. In other words, what we have immediately is a picture of Isaiah 56. Jesus immediately portrays for them, this is what it should look like. This is what it looks like to make it a house of prayer. It looks like the poor, the needy, those who cry out of their physical need here to picture the greater spiritual neediness. We've seen so often through the Gospel of Matthew from the beginning of these healings how closely they are tied. What a great picture they are of our spiritual sickly condition. And so every time we see healing, it is portraying and reminding us of our great neediness and sickliness, inability to stand on our own, inability to heal ourselves, and our great need to cry out to the Lord for healing. And so it's portrayed once again. And for the last time, this is the last of the corporate healings that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. There's another thing going on here. The blind and the crippled could also go no further. They could not function as priests. They were not allowed to go further into the temple complex lest they, like the Gentiles, make it unclean. There's a beautiful picture here. As Jesus makes the impure pure, as he gives them access to the sanctuary where they had previously been hindered. What a wonderful illustration of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And here he is providing access to those who were previously held at a distance because of their sickliness. There may be some this morning. You do not have access to God because you are spiritually sick. You are living in sin. You've never cried out to the Lord. You have not called to Him in repentance. If that's true of you, then do not leave here this morning without turning to the Lord and crying out to Him. His sanctuary is a place of prayer. Turn to Him. Petition Him. And just like the lame and the blind that were healed, everyone who asked, so he will not turn any away. But much more serious, come to him in repentance, asking to be healed of the much more serious condition and ailment of sin. Notice the amazing irony. Those who have not been able to see physically are the ones here who perceive Jesus rightly. And that irony is heightened all the more in verses 15 and 16. We know something's up when we see but, especially when it's followed by the chief priests and the scribes. And notice what that but is tied to. It's 
But upon seeing the wonderful things Jesus is doing, not only that, but seeing that the children are repeating the refrain they had been hearing earlier that day as Jesus entered Jerusalem. And you know how it is with children. Once they hear a song, especially a new and exciting song, they're going to keep on singing it. I got to experience that yesterday for about 30 renditions. And I think that's what's going on here. You've got children who are excited. They keep repeating and shouting what they've heard the crowds and the disciples proclaiming as he entered the city, Hosanna to the son of David. So observing the wonderful things, observing these children singing, Jesus responds to the question of, do you not see this? And really, their question was more of a statement, wasn't it? They were really asking Jesus, are you going to allow this blasphemy to continue? Jesus says, if you want blasphemy, let me give it to you. He quotes Psalm 8, a psalm of praise about the Creator. We read it this morning. And notice what he does in just this short response. Just this reference to just one line of the psalm. He substitutes himself for God. He makes the psalm about himself. He is declaring, I am God. In other words, these children are perfectly right in what they are saying. Of course I'm not going to make them stop. That's his answer to the implicit question about, are you going to stop the blasphemy? No, they have it right. I am the Lord God. And Psalm 8 was the perfect place to go. Not only because of the refrain about children, but because it was a psalm of creation. And it answers the other part to their question about the seeing the wonderful things. Here we have the creator, the one who is there at the beginning at the foundation of the world, restoring vision and healing lameness. He is rolling back some of the effects of the curse in these persons. And if you remember from our reading this morning, why did the children cry out in Psalm 8? It's to silence the enemies of God. Not only did Jesus make himself God and make it abundantly clear to these chief priests and scribes that not only is it blasphemy, but I will go ahead and call myself God. He says, you are the enemies of God. That's why the children are crying out to silence you. From what Matthew and the other gospel writers record, they were silenced. They have no response. Mark says that after this, they just plotted how to kill him. After all the excitement, tables and chairs flying, the blind being healed, the lame walking, children singing, and priests yelling, verse 17 might be easy to look over or pass over. But notice those first few words. And he left them. They didn't walk away from him. He walked away from them. That is the most severe judgment that exists. This is what unrepentant robbing of God results in, the departure of grace and mercy and hope. It is final judgment. David's prayer and confession in Psalm 51 was, do not cast me away from your presence. Psalm 84.10, 
The psalmist cries out, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I want to be nowhere else than in your presence. The cry of Moses when God was speaking with him was, If your presence does not go with us, don't lead us from here. We only want to be where your presence is. But here we see Jesus walking away. He leaves them. His presence departs from them. There's an ominous silence as he leaves. What should be abundantly clear in this passage and that we read here is how much God hates sin, especially when that sin involves confusing, hiding. Now, the word for it is robbing or stealing his glory. Those who mislead, those who teach falsely, those who obscure who God is are severely judged. God does not tolerate persons who distract or lead others from worship of him. And that character of God has not changed. He still hates sin. He still judges those who create distractions from the worship of him. An example is found with the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, where they experience God's wrath and cease to exist because somewhat similar to the priests and the religious system of Israel, they had become occupied with the accumulation of wealth and riches in this world. And that obsession with riches distracted them from their testimony and their worship of God. And God said, I will snuff you out. And you can't find the church of Laodicea on a map anymore. It's a warning for churches. It's a warning for each of us to keep our focus on Christ on the ministry of the word, the preaching of the gospel, and the worship of God. Whether we can name any number of distractions, we could spend the rest of the day talking about all the distractions, all the different ways we could rob God, we could steal from him. We could do it financially, with an occupation, a preoccupation with riches and wealth. It could be your job, it could be your reputation. It could be any number of things. It could be how you live and how you act in such a way that steals glory from God. It prevents others from seeing who he is. You deny his power and his authority over your life. And you have a false testimony of him. But the point is to, isn't to try and name every single thing that could distract or rob from God. The question for each of us is, what am I doing? And rather than put it in the negative, let's put it in the positive. What can you be doing to bring greater praise and glory to God? What can you be doing to make even clearer that you are a child of his? What can you be doing to make even clearer how good he is in the midst of a hard, tough, painful situation? What else can you be doing to show your children the love of Christ? What else can we be doing to love him more? What better use of my time can I make? 
What better use of my resources? Let us be like the, and this is our final reminder, we need to be like the lame and the blind. Not like the chief priests and the scribes who, through their religion, thought they had it all together, but those who recognize their absolute neediness. That's who we are. That's who we should be. We've seen it from the very beginning of our study through Matthew. When entered the Sermon on the Mount, it begins with being poor in spirit, recognizing our great neediness. We never are there. No matter how long you've been a believer, no matter how much you've studied, no matter how much you know, no matter how many people you've discipled, at the end of the day, if you compare it to what it really looks like to know Christ, you barely have moved the needle. In terms of your spiritual ability to stand, you haven't gotten anywhere without him. That's what we need to be reminded of. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder we have this morning from this text. Father, first, that you would make a way. Thank you that you have made a way in the darkness, a way in the hopelessness of this world, a way in the overwhelming, incurable disease of sin, that a way has been made through Jesus Christ. Would any who do not know you this morning, who have heard this message, cry out to you, come to you, broken and needy, expressing their inability to heal themselves and crying out for you to do that work. And will we never lose that posture and that understanding that we are needy? As the hymn goes, we need you every hour. Every hour we need you. Help us to maintain that posture and help us to avoid robbing you of your glory, stealing your glory by continually bringing you praise and avoiding the the many, many, many distractions of this life. In your name, amen. Let's stand as we sing.